Good morning. The Bible says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Biblically speaking, this means atheism and agnosticism and unbelief are foolish. So the Bible's clear, it makes a value judgment about certain religious perspectives. Some are wise and some are not. Some are foolish and some are godly. If this were so obvious though, why would so much foolish thinking abound in our day? If it, was, if it was just as simple as opening the Bible and say, I don't want to be a fool, therefore I'm going to do what it says. It makes me think that when it comes to human wisdom, there's no doubt that we are in a drought. Someone has humorously said that some men are wise and some are otherwise. Two groups, the wise and the otherwise. As I think about the relative proportions of people in each group, the otherwise is a lot bigger by a huge factor. When was the last time you met someone that you felt was truly wise? Make it personal. When was the last time you were truly wise? Our age is an age of clickbait sound bites and shortcuts. It's harder and harder to find wisdom and to live with wisdom. Do we even know what wisdom is? This morning's message is entitled Joseph's Wisdom. But what's curious about the Joseph story is that the only time he's called wise is by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The story, in, in a way, lets us discover his wisdom through the story, through the narrative, through Joseph's experiences. And as Jesus says in Luke 7:35, wisdom is vindicated by her children. This means it's picturing wisdom as a mother or as a father. And as my wife and I said, we'll write parenting books when all of our children, Lord willing, have grandchildren. Then you'll really know if you can listen to what we have to say. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. Joseph's life, likewise, and his actions, like children, prove the wisdom of the parents. Joseph's life and his actions prove that he's wise, even though we aren't explicitly told that he was a wise and godly man. That's why, even though he's not one of the three great patriarchs, you remember them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph the son of Jacob, the 11th son of Jacob, warrants our study in this series of the patriarchs. In fact, Joseph becomes a father to his father when in Genesis chapter 45, and we'll see it in this morning's passage, he says, I will provide for you. A father provides for his children, and Joseph, though he's a son and a brother, becomes a father to his brothers and even to Jacob, his father. And when it comes to wisdom, Joseph provides for us as well. He's a father of wisdom for us. What does Joseph teach us about wisdom? In a nutshell, Joseph's life teaches us how wisdom is put in motion, what wisdom pursues, 
and what wisdom produces. Three Ps, how wisdom is put in motion, what wisdom pursues, and what wisdom produces. As for my preaching text, I'm not sure where I'm going to start because this story begins in Genesis 41 and ends in Genesis 50, and we're not going to read 10 chapters of Scripture this morning. But I'll be reading selections or passages throughout this morning's message as we glean from the story itself about Joseph's wisdom. And let's start with prayer, because unless God illuminates our minds, we are fools. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your holy word. It is like a lamp shining in a dark place, and it is wisdom for people who are uh, ignorant and foolish by nature. So illuminate our minds, open our hearts, soften our hearts. May we receive the wisdom, the instruction that you have for us this morning as your word is preached, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we see what Joseph has to teach us, those lessons that I just listed for you, let's review the story. As one scholar said, the the biblical figure of Joseph offers one of the most fascinating and complex narratives in the Bible. I have literally read this, this section of Scripture three times this week, taking detailed verse by verse notes. And each time I read it, I picked up something new. It's an incredible story. If you haven't read that, it would be a a great Sunday afternoon activity to read through the whole of the Joseph story. I would start at 37. We've already covered some of it. But this morning, we're going to pick up at the story where Joseph finds himself in an Egyptian prison in Genesis 41. Let's turn there. Genesis 40, I should say, after he is thrown into prison from the uh, scandal or the, uh, he sort of got canceled, if you will, by Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown into jail and he is in this place. He meets two men who have royal appointments in the king's court and Pharaoh's court, the cupbearer to the king and the king's baker. And in each case, each one of these men have a dream. And Joseph hears about the dream, and he asserts that the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. And in the one case, in the cupbearer's case, the dream bodes good news. His time in jail is about to end, and he will be restored to his former place of dignity. And the baker hears about this. He says, well, I'm going to tell him my dream too. See, it turned out pretty good for the cupbearer. And so the baker tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph's like, he didn't say this, but sorry, bro. (laughs) This is not going to end well for you. That part about the baskets being lifted off of your head, your head is going to be lifted off of your body. And as the cupbearer returns to his former glory, Joseph sort of sends him a parting request. Please, don't forget me um, when, you, when you return to your glory. Re- remember, remember the guy that told you that good news was coming. Of course, the cupbearer doesn't remember until Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, has a dream. 
And that brings us to Genesis 41. And in this dream, there are, the, the, the king sees seven fat cows. And then he sees seven skinny, emaciated, starving cows. And none of his magicians and all of his royal court, and the Egyptians practiced divination and witchcraft and various kinds of magic, and so magicians and wise men were kind of, they, they both wore the same hat. None of his magicians, none of his counselors, none of his royal retinue could interpret this dream of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And there was another similar dream. And at this point in the story, the cupbearer goes, oh, snap. I promised this guy, I met this guy once. I know a guy who can interpret your dream. And I promised him I wouldn't forget him, and I did, but if it pleases your majesty, I'm going to go get him. He can interpret your dream, I promise you. And so Pharaoh gives his permission. The cupbearer goes and fetches Joseph out of jail. Joseph's like, thank God, literally thank God. And Pharaoh says, I, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, no, I can't interpret dreams. God can interpret dreams. And then he explains to him, once he sets the terms, this isn't about the Joseph magic show, this is about the glorying, uh, all glory to God show. Genesis 41, 16, look at that verse. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Here we see, picking up from two weeks ago, I talked about the humiliation of Joseph. If humiliation is about emptying ourselves, Joseph at this point is completely empty. He was full of himself when he was 17. Now, around the age of 30, he's had some time, and he's come to the realization that it is not in me. What a, what a beautiful phrase. It is not in me. God has the answer. And so, Joseph explains the dream to him. Apparently, the seven fat cows are indicating a seven great years in the fields, in the stock market, everything's going to be going up. But Joseph says to the king, he says, I want to caution you because the seven skinny cows are a recession like you've never seen before. There's going to be famine in Egypt and in all the land. So rather than living high on the hog for those first seven years, you need to be thrifty and save and set, set aside all that extra grain because you're going to need it. And Pharaoh is amazed at the wisdom given to this. Genesis 41, verse 38. Look at that verse. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh put two and two together. He said, apparently there's nothing in Joseph that would give him wisdom. It must be the Spirit of God. And so, as a reward and as an acknowledgement that God is speaking through Joseph, Pharaoh is so pleased that he adopts Joseph's plan to the T and put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. He would be considered like the prime minister or the governor, perhaps. 
And then this interesting passage, which is often missed in the telling of the Joseph story, in verse 50 of chapter 41. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. You see, when Joseph was raised up, he was also given a wife. If you're unmarried, that's not a bad way to go. Spend a few years in jail, you know, get accused of adultery, and then interpret a dream, and all of a sudden you get an Egyptian wife. Not bad, not a bad program. Joseph called, verse 51, the name of the firstborn, Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph's way of recognizing God's grace is to imprint the story of his life and the story of God's grace in Joseph's life onto his sons in their names. And starting in 42, Joseph's brothers come back into the picture, and this is when it really gets interesting. Remember in Joseph's dream, the one in which he saw his brothers bowing down to him like sheaves of wheat, and he was one sheaf of wheat that was raised up, and the the brothers are bowing down. And he goes, if they wore suspenders in those days, he sort of stuck his thumb through his suspenders, wiggling his, his elbows with that fancy coat, and he's like, hey, brothers, guess what I just dreamed? If you're the youngest, you know what this is like. You have a way of kind of making all the older siblings angry. There's a formula. Joseph managed to do that. So at this point, we see that dream coming to pass since the famine was over all the earth, including Canaan, where Jacob and his family lived. Jacob, the father of the 12 men, said to 10 of his sons, the one by Leah and Rachel's Rachel's servant woman, he said to them that they need to go to Egypt and buy grain. Why are you just sitting there, he says. What's wrong with you? Can't you see we're starving here? Get up and do something about it. And when they got to Egypt, who did they meet but Joseph? But there's a caveat here. While Joseph recognized them, they had no idea who he was. At this point, he's probably 42 years old. The last they saw him, it was at the bottom of a pit, and he was 17. He was still dressed like a shepherd. At this point, he has an Egyptian wife. He's the second most powerful person in the kingdom. He is completely unrecognizable to them. And even if they would recognize him, That's the last place they'd expect to find him. And so they bow themselves down before the governor of Egypt, directly fulfilling the dream as it was predicted 25 years prior. Joseph is not the little brother anymore, is he? He hasn't forgotten his Hebrew roots. I think he still worships and holds to the faith of his father Jacob. And while he recognized them, they had no idea who he was, this great man. And the story that follows in 42, 43, 44, and 45, it is an elaborate development 
of Joseph's scheme to test his brothers to see if they are repentant for the horrific crime that they perpetrated against him. The test in 42 starts out by Joseph saying, Who are you? You're spies. I know it. And they're like, Oh no, what is happening to us? This is like getting stopped at security. It's the last thing that you want. Joseph tests his brothers by treating them harshly. His efforts are an attempt, as Spurgeon puts it, quote, to awaken the consciences of his ten brothers. I don't think that Joseph is a masochist. He's not just trying to get even with them. We know that because Joseph was already empty. He said, there is nothing in me but the Spirit of God. Pharaoh saw that. He names his children Manasseh, I have forgotten all of that. I have forgotten what is behind. I am pressing on towards what lies ahead. God has made me fruitful in the land of my pilgrimage. I have a beautiful Egyptian wife for crying out loud. I think it's the opposite. He didn't want to cause them pain. And if he did, he only wanted so much pain as would bring them into a place of empty humility as God had brought him. It is if, and this is Spurgeon again, for their good, he showed himself to be a stranger to them and even an enemy so that he might bring them to a place of repentance for the awful deed that they had done against him. So as I said, the first layer of the test is he accuses them of being a spy, and I I can't go into all the details, but there's an interesting layer of this where he accuses them of being a spy. They say, no, 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 we, we assure you, we are 12 brothers, and one of our brothers is lost, and the other is at home because he's the favorite of our father, and they do what people who are nervous and being stared at by a police officer do. You, you start talking too much, and they were just gabbing along, just saying whatever came to their mind to try to get themselves out of the situation. Oh, you have a little brother, do you? You will not come back to see my face until you bring him with you. Oh, no. But Joseph, while this is happening, the man who runs his house, the steward of his home, takes the money that all of them paid for the grain because there's a famine and they're trying to bring food back from the grocery store. He takes the money and and hides it in their luggage. Effectively planting evidence to prove that they're thieves. So now they're spies and thieves. And they get halfway home. One of them opens his bag and, and discovers the money there and they are mortified. They come home and they tell their father what happened and the father is so upset, he's visibly upset, he's shaking with anxiety and and anger and, and it opens the Joseph wound all over again. He lost one son of his 
favorite wife, Rachel, he's now going to lose the second. And they run out of grain eventually. They have to go back. And he says, go get some grain. And they say, um, Dad, we, we can't go back without Benjamin. He, he made it explicit. Well, why'd you tell him that? Well, he, I, he just kept asking. It's like he knew something about us. And so, in the first sign of repentance, Reuben, the oldest, pledges his two sons if anything happens to, to Benjamin. And dad isn't unmoved. He's like, get out of here. I have no interest in your sons. And further on, Judah, the two men that were involved in trying to save Joseph, by the way, back in Genesis 37, Judah says, if anything happens to him, I pledge my life in his place. What a statement. Judah pledges his life, his own life, in the place of Benjamin's. And then the story repeats a second time. They come, they fill their grain sack, but first they tell the steward of the house, steward, but, but before we meet Joseph, please, all of our money was somehow found in our sacks. We are not thieves. We promise you, we did not steal that grain. And the steward says, peace, your God and the God of your fathers. Let's look at that verse. This is a beautiful verse, chapter 43. He replied, verse 23, 43, 23. This is the steward. Joseph says, you all are, I'm throwing a feast in your honor. And they're, they're, they're convinced they're about to be uh, hung up by their toes. And so they're, they're blabbering this confession to the steward. They don't know the feast is happening. He says, peace to you. Do not be afraid, Genesis 43, 23. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money, which technically is true. Both halves. The God and the God of their father put their sacks in their money, and the steward definitely received the money, but he's the one who put it back at Joseph's instruction because Joseph fears God, and he's, he's sussing out, he's testing out their, their repentance and their humility. Well, it gets worse, and and the story winds up in uh, many different directions. And at the end, not once, not twice, the story has the ten brothers three times admitting their guilt. It's a triple confession. It's like three coats of paint. It's completely covered. Three times they bow down before Joseph. It says prostrating themselves to the ground. It's a triple confirmation that the dream was true. Three times the, the brothers hear, either from the steward or from Joseph himself or from their father, Jacob, that God will bless them. When, when they go back the second time to, to Egypt, Jacob prays and he says, may, may Almighty God show you mercy before the man. And he does. So the brothers are, are getting it from all sides. They're being brought low in humiliation. They're being proved wrong about the dream that, that Joseph was given so many years ago. And God is layering them with grace upon grace upon grace three times. 
At one point, we have them in a feast, all making merry together with the governor of Egypt. And somehow, to their amazement, um, this governor has figured out how to seat them in birth order all the way around the table. They're like, God is real. God is real. Well, it's a fascinating story. You can tell it's gotten into my bloodstream, as the scriptures should. But what can we learn? Three Ps. The wisdom of Joseph is put in motion by the fear of the Lord. This is related to Joseph's growth and wisdom. You see, the man we meet in the beginning of the story in Genesis 37, the 17-year-old, arrogant, full-of-himself kid who was definitely being used by God at that moment. But it's, it's a very mixed bag. By the time we meet him at age 40, 42 years old, however old he is, he has grown in wisdom. I love this passage in Proverbs chapter 1. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The text emphasizes growth. It says in Proverbs 1, it says that Let the wise increase in learning. It doesn't say once you're wise, you're done. It says wisdom is the place where growth begins. We never arrive. And Joseph shows us this. The text in Proverbs says, let the one who understands not graduate from needing further guidance, Let the one who understands seek it all the more. And Jesus has an interesting negative parallel to this. He says, to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is a a lesson from, from Joseph's life. Joseph at any point could have squandered the little that he had, and the story would have turned out much differently. But at each point, the little that he had, Joseph sought more wisdom. He seeks more. And a a caution to, to almost Christians is in order here. Or to covenant children. What you have, you need to seek more. See, wisdom is put in motion by the fear of God. By saying, I have not arrived. I do not have all the answers. And at at any point, Joseph's testing and his suffering and his humiliation could have closed his ears and and shut his eyes to further growth. This is a problem for pastors as well. We can never come to a point where we have learned enough for we know it all. And my greatest mentors, the people who have meant the most to me, are people who, even at an advanced age, say, I'm still getting started. I'm in kindergarten in school with Jesus. 
Joseph has to learn the fear of God. Remember when he was confronted by Potiphar's wife? He says, far be it from God. I could lose, or far be it from me. I could lose my job. He doesn't say that. He says, far be it from me and sinning against God. He's not worrying about his ordination credentials. He's not worried about his family name, what his parents will say, social media. It's the invisible God and the pleasure of a holy God that animates Joseph in that house. And yet he still had to learn more, didn't he? He had to come to a place where he could name his son Manasseh. I have forgotten all of that. And every time he would call that boy that name, it would be a reminder that God was still teaching Joseph. When he was addressing Pharaoh, listen to the fear of the Lord in Joseph's words. God has revealed to Pharaoh what the Lord is about to do, Genesis 41, 25. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do, Genesis 41, 28. The thing is fixed by God, and it will surely come about, Genesis 41, 32. Now that Joseph is in Egypt, he has a wife, he's at this preeminent place, one pastor explains it like this. And now that Joseph, quote, from the height he had reached, could look back on the way by which he had been led to it, he cordially approves all that God had done. There was no resentment, no murmuring. He would often find himself looking back, this pastor continues, and thinking, had I found my brothers where I thought they were, had the pit not been on the caravan road, had the merchants not come up upon us so opportunely, had I not been sold at all or to some other master, had I not been imprisoned, or had I not been put in another ward, had any one of the many slender links in the chain of my career been absent, how different might my present state have been. How plainly I now see that all those sad mishaps that crushed my hopes and tortured my spirit were steps in the only conceivable path to my present position, end quote. When I read that this week, I just stopped. That phrase, any one of the many slender links in the chain of my career, this is the fear of God speaking when you can look at your life and all that you've been through, including all the knuckle-headed decisions that you've made, and say, I am where I am by the grace of God. This is the wisdom of Joseph. And you see, what I love about the story is it never tells you that straight out. You, you, you get into the story, and, and, and as it did for me, it gets into you. And you start marveling at one coincidence after the other, and the way this man reacts each time. Is he fighting God? No. He is submitting to God. Each new wave, each new blow across the hull of his ship finds him saying, yes, Lord. To him who has, more will be given, Jesus says. 
but to him who doesn't have. Even what he has will be taken away. Don't presume upon God's grace. The reason you're in this trial right now, this difficulty, I have no idea why, but I know it is in the hands of an all-wise God who is seeking to work wisdom in you. Don't squander this moment. It's not going to come again. It's a launch window. Many days will pass before you'll have another opportunity like this. And then finally, at the end of Joseph's testing of his brothers, he sees how humble that they have become, and he puts an end to the test mercifully. It's, it's painful. I mean, to read it, you're like, oh, that had to have hurt. I mean, at one point, Joseph leaves the room and is bawling so loud that they hear it two or three houses over. He's so heartbroken for his brothers. So mercifully, he puts an end to the test in Genesis 45. Look at verse 5. They see Joseph weeping, as I just explained, and then in verse 4, 45 verse 4 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. The Egyptian governor is bawling before their eyes. They're like, they're in a twilight zone moment. What is going on right now? He says, come, come to me. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Stop feeling bad. All is well. All is forgiven. All is forgotten. Don't be upset that you sold me here. Because God sent me before you to preserve life. You tried to take my life. Don't worry about that. God's bigger than that. He, he saw what you were doing. He sent me here to save life. Look at verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You know the saying, don't shoot the messenger? Think about it. In this case, don't shoot the messenger who's trying to kill you. Joseph had to come to that. My second point, I'll be briefer because I've been talking about it. What does wisdom pursue? Wisdom pursues justice. Wisdom pursues justice. One definition, and I've talked to you this before, one definition of of wisdom is the practical application of the law of God. That's worth writing down. Wisdom is the practical application of the law of God. The Ten Commandments. So what is wisdom? Read the Ten Commandments and apply them in creative and practical ways in your life. Take the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. If your father and mother and family and brothers are starving in Canaan, bring them to Egypt where the food is. That's a creative, 
nuanced application of the fifth commandment. Now, the fifth commandment hadn't been issued yet, by the way. But the law of God is on every human heart, before Moses and after Moses. And Joseph knew in his being, he knew he had a duty to his his father and to his brothers. And he says, I am here to preserve life. That's a fifth commandment. But justice, righteousness, rightness, lawfulness, wisdom must pursue that as well. And and so before he brings his brothers to Egypt, he pursues justice in the matter of the injustice of the way that he was treated. This test, this harsh treatment of his brothers is a creative application of the justice of God. And it's, notice it's modest. He's not beating it over the head with them again and again, reminding them how many times, years later, you did this to me, you did this to me. I'm going to get justice. He's gentle with it. There's, there's a rough gentleness about the way he treats his brother. The way that I thought about it is like this. Joseph created a morality play in which his brothers would discover how guilty they were in the gentlest way possible. They just didn't know they were in the play. I was actually wondering if Sarah or Will could write this play for us. What comes out of the drama is not Joseph's cruelty, but the cruelty of the brothers. What emerges is not Joseph's manipulation and deceit, but the manipulation, deceit, and oppression of and by the brothers. Joseph is shrewd to be sure, but he's not a liar. He simply withheld information from the brothers as a way of drawing out a sincere repentance for them. And if you wonder what right does he have to test their sincerity, my answer is that it appears to me that Joseph in the story is being used as an instrument of God. So Joseph is like a prophet, like Nathan, the prophet. Another great name, Natan, gift of God. And Nathan approaches King David with a story about a man who stole a little lamb. And oh, David, David gets into it. He goes, no, you're kidding me. He did that? He should die. And then Nathan with the punchline, punchline of the Bible, you are the man. In this sense, Joseph is like Jesus in his pursuit of justice who tells parables to the crowds, knowing that they will confuse his enemies and clarify his friends who are prostitutes and sinners and outsiders on the margin. The third lesson, not only does wisdom put in motion by the fear of the Lord and wisdom pursues justice, but modestly, thirdly, wisdom produces results. I mentioned wisdom is vindicated by her children. What are the results of Joseph's wisdom? First of all, The proposal for the dreams pleased Pharaoh was immediately implemented, and it worked. Practical people like biblical wisdom because we want to see results. We're 
were results-oriented. And that turned out pretty well. In fact, at one point, Joseph is buying the lands of the people who no longer have money to give. So like the, the properties of, of Egyptian royalty was tripled or quadrupled or by a factor of 10, they now have all these lands. So Pharaoh, another result of Joseph's wisdom is that it's profitable. And I, I want to encourage you that when you use biblical wisdom in your life, not always, but is often profitable, financially profitable to do things in a manner that fears God with your business and your family. When you live by the word, when you live by the book, it often brings a profit. It's not a guarantee, but it's the way God designed the world to work. And then peace. That's a third result. Look at the reconciliation because his modest pursuit of justice, peace has been obtained with the brothers. And the text that's in your bulletin, which is in chapter 50, is proof. Let's read that as we close. We're fast-forwarding many years later. They're settled in Egypt, and the father, Jacob, has passed on into glory. And verse 15 of Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, it may be that we are now in major trouble. Dad's not around anymore to, you know, to buffer us. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, which he didn't, by the way. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. What's amazing to me, a close reading of the J Joseph story, not once does Jacob ever find out what actually happened. I suspect the old guy knew, though, but the story never tells us that. So the brothers come up with this um, scheme. Look at Joseph's reaction at the end of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him in this way. Talk about a man of a tender heart. And then the scheme falls away and the brothers fall down. This is the fourth time they prostrated themselves before Joseph in the story. Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He tells them the same thing he told Pharaoh. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Father Joseph providing for his brothers. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. As we conclude, how can you apply this morning's text to your life? Joseph feared God in spite of his circumstances. That's how wisdom moves in your life. So if you're looking for wisdom, if you're at a juncture in your life, you need guidance. You need to move towards the fear of God in that matter of uncertainty. And the Ten Commandments, you can do far worse than start with the Ten Commandments. Second application, uh, Joseph's wisdom humbly or modestly pursued justice. 
Some of you need to back off your pursuit of justice, constantly punishing the people in your life who have punished you, even non-verbally. Let it go. Back off. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? You are not in the place of God. It is not your job to punish the, the perpetrator of your misery. But if you can do it modestly, with restraint, do it. Do it. Joseph's creative application of the law of God and the lives of his brothers elicited repentance from them. If you can do that, absolutely do it. And Joseph's wisdom finally produced results. I wonder, is there evidence in your life that you are living wisely? That you're living, as I said, in a creative application of God's word. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said, they will know that you are my disciples if you bear much fruit. Is there evidence in your life? Is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? What's the proof? In the end, the only way that Joseph was able to be wise is that he was filled with the Spirit of God. We know this because Pharaoh saw it. Even the unbelieving king could recognize a man who was filled with the Spirit. And this is the wisdom we need ultimately as fathers, as mothers, as children, as sisters and brothers, is the wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God in the Gospel. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this remarkable man in the Bible and his wisdom. Thank you for the irony that the only person who calls him wise is the one who should who shouldn't. It's the pagan king. And yet Joseph, in spite of all of his adversity, by your spirit is able to grow in wisdom, creatively applying it to his circumstances and producing marvelous results. We pray that this church would be filled with men and women who partake of and build on the wisdom of Joseph who himself shows us a picture of the very wisdom of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. Every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.